and this court will be adjourned until the jury's verdict is reached. Dr. Scott Blanford is an assistant professor at Wilford Laurier University. He is an instructor and program coordinator for undergraduate and graduate studies in policing and public safety. And, and that's something I run across quite often, is yeah. that I'm not a true academic. I'm right. what I call a pracademic. Right. Prior to his career in academia, Scott was a police officer with the London Police Service in Ontario, where he enjoyed a very full career across a variety of administrative and operational units. He retired in 2012 at the rank of sergeant. There's one thing I learned in 30 years of policing, that there's, there's nothing's black and white, yep. just varying shades of gray. Yep. Whether in uniform or at the front of a classroom, Scott has spent most of his working life instructing, training, and teaching policing. Scott is a strong advocate of formal education for police officers and has researched and written on the area of policing hiring standards and whether or not policing in Canada can be properly described as a profession. Scott's research and writing is firmly grounded in his operational experience. Speaking with Scott, it's evident that he takes considerable pride in his career as a police officer, but he's also not afraid to raise questions, concerns, and criticisms with practices and traditions. It's Thanksgiving weekend, and the sun is shining here in Vancouver. This is episode 13 with Dr. Scott Blanford. I'm Dan Coles, and this is Under Reserve. If someone like me says, you know, yeah, being a police officer isn't, you know, a real profession, the wrong cop's likely to punch me in the face. Whereas if you've, yeah. if you've lived it for 30 years, you can say, well, hold on a second here. You know, let me tell you why. Yeah. You know, you're in a position to do that where I'm, I'm really not. Yeah. Well, you know, and that's an interesting point because you're right. Cops get very upset when you say it's not a profession. Uh, yeah. And, and, you know, uh, when you talk about it in colloquial terms, just very simple terms, yeah, it, it's considered a profession. But when you look at it and what a true profession is, see, I'm already talking with my hands. Yeah, yeah, when you yeah. talk about what a true profession is and what it means to be a profession, it hasn't yet reached that threshold. And that's not to say, as I've said before, it's not that they're not professional. It's just it doesn't meet the criteria for a profession. And there are certain things that have to happen, and that's the move. And if you talk to any chief, I mean, I was talking to several chiefs this past week, and they all said the same thing. We need to continue the move towards professionalization. Well, professionalization is to become a profession. And not one of them once said, we're not professional, so we need to improve. It's it's the you know, the the noun of a profession versus the verb. With that prelude, let's back it up. You didn't always, I can't imagine, think in these terms. You, oh hell no. <laughs> you were once you were you were once a young man looking to become a yep. police officer. Um, yep. how'd you get your start in policing? Well, it's interesting because I come from a family of, of police, uh, police and military, and I'm a product of the Ford Motor Company. I grew up in Windsor. My dad worked at Ford's. He was a senior electrician. Uh, my brother worked at Ford's. So when I graduated from high school, uh, the expectation was, well, go apply at Ford's. And I didn't know what I wanted to do at the time, but I knew what I didn't want to do, and I didn't want to spend 30 years on a production line. Uh, you know, working shifts. Ironically, I ended up working shifts. But I just I thought there was more out there than you know, following in the family footsteps. And so I had an uncle and two cousins that were with police organizations. And it just kind of flowed with where I saw myself, something always different, being outside. So I started looking to where I could go. So I applied to the RCMP. 
because at the time I was relatively fluent in French and there was a real push back in the early 80s to hire uh, French speaking officers. And again, I was only 18 at the time. So I applied and I went through all the process and I was told, yeah, we'll, we'll hire you, but it's going to be 18 months until you can go to the depot. And 18 months when you're 18, just out of school, looking to get started in your career, that was just for me too long. So I started looking around locally and I applied to the Windsor Police Service and I wrote all the tests, did everything. And at the time they were taking uh, five cadets and I was number six on the list. So then I said, okay, well, obviously I can make it uh, based on the criteria. So then I started looking around and I thought, well, I'll go to Toronto, right? Because Toronto is the center of the universe. And so I applied to Toronto Police and everything was set for me to go up and do my tests and such. On my way up to Toronto, I stopped in London for lunch. And I thought, well, maybe I'll just put an application in London just in case Toronto doesn't work out. And that was on a Wednesday. I went in, I put my application in, and and they said, well, do you have time to write some tests? So I said, yeah, sure. So I wrote some tests. Well, do you have time for an interview? I said, well, I'm supposed to be in Toronto to do my tests. And they said, well, can you reschedule? So from the HR office in London, I called Toronto HR office. I had car trouble or something else. Mm. I can't remember what it was. And can I reschedule? And I said, yeah, okay. So I finished the, the interviews and I drove home. And I got home back to Windsor and my mom's standing on the porch with the phone in her hand. Anyways, I get on the phone. I talked to the inspector. And he said, yeah, we want you back tomorrow. So this was now Thursday. So I drove back up to London. Uh, we didn't do a fitness test. We just did a physical with a doctor. <laughs> so anyways, I'm sitting in the office now after all this is done in my suit. And, and uh, the staff sergeant came out and he said, okay, come on to my office, Scott. He's an old English guy. And he said, right. He said, uh, I want you to understand when you sign here, you're signing for 30 years on the street. Anything else above that is gravy. And I said, so I am hired? Yes. He said, we want you to start Monday morning. And I said, Monday morning? I said, like, I have to find a place to live. I have a job I have to give notice to back there. I was working at the radio station uh, and at the roller rink. And uh, he said, okay, fine. We understand. A Wednesday morning, 8.30, be here. So in the space of a week, I went from applying to being hired. That doesn't happen anymore. What year is this? Uh, This is 1982. 1982, you driving through Windsor, apply on a whim on a Wednesday. On my way to Toronto, I apply on a whim, and I'm working the next Wednesday. That doesn't happen. I found out uh, later that they had just fired a cadet. So they had an opening for one, and it, it it was a perfect storm of right place, right time. Uh, I, to this day, I still don't know how they did the background investigation in that short of time. I think they just pulled the one from the RCMP. Mm. And what, what way did you, uh, Wednesday morning, what's police academy look like? Uh, I didn't go to the academy. I, I was a cadet. So, uh, basically in, in London at the time, cadets did what they called courier duty. So we drove around internally. We would deliver all the internal mail and then we would hop in an unmarked car. We would drive around the city hall and the courthouse and drop documents off. And then they also worked in the cell block. So the cadets in the cell block were responsible for uh, processing prisoners with this, the sergeant, the officer in charge. They typed up all the paperwork for the charge packages and moved prisoners around for fingerprinting, for breath tests and that. So you got a real quick uh, education. Uh, and away I went. So I started working. Uh, there, and I'd been there for about about three months, and I was in the lunchroom, and I got notified I had a phone call, so they transferred it to the lunchroom, and I answered it, and it was the inspector from Windsor Police, mm. and he said, Scott, he said, one of the, the cadets here, a 
quit on us. So you were number six. So if you want, uh, you can come back to Windsor. And at 18, living on my own in an unknown city with no friends at that point, really, except a, just a couple few, uh, it was really tempting. I thought, hmm, I'd go back home, home-cooked meals, my laundry done for me, all my friends are there. But I said to the inspector, no, I appreciate the offer, but London gave me the chance, so I'm going to stay here. And I did 30 years there. That's different. It, it's it's a different time now. We have people moving in and out of policing sure. all the time. Some people use it as, you know, just a marker on their, their resume so they can move on to something else. Right. But back then, you know, I'm of that generation where, you know, you sort of stay with a company for the 30 years and you expect them to take care of you. Was there any formal education or was it just an on-the-job? Yeah. yeah that, normally, they would send you down. Basically, back then, when you turned 20, uh, as long as you've been doing a good job as a cadet, they would then send you down to Ontario Police College. Okay. They would, and I was one of the first ones in, in the, the the new process where they would send you down, they would swear you in as a constable, so an automatic pay raise, and then they would send you down to Ontario Police College. For back then, it was a part A, part B, so part A was the, uh, was 12 weeks, part B was 10 weeks. And then you come back, you do a, a week or two in the classroom, basically learning all the paperwork processes and policies, procedures. And then out on the street, you go with a coach officer for up to three three months. I was one of the first ones where they changed it. They sent us down as cadets as opposed to sworn constables. So we were cadets at the Ontario Police College. And all the other services were still sending down new recruits as constables. So there was a couple of us. Toronto had done the same thing. So there's a couple of us that were cadets, and you'd have a little cadet bar underneath the, the shoulder flash, right? So you're immediately identifiable. Yeah, so yeah. all these new you know, constable recruits were looking at us going, oh, you guys are just cadets. And in reality, I mean, we had shirts that had bloodstains on them, <laughs> well-worn in. Yeah. We had stories from the cells. Yeah. And some of these new constable recruits, they were still pulling pins out of their shirts. Right. right. So very quickly, they learned, uh, we can look to these guys because they have some experience. Mm-hmm. This is all happening just as the as the charter is, is coming into play, right? Is eighty two? Yeah, yeah. Eighty two was the charter. I went to Ontario Police College in eighty four. Right, right. But still, very uh, early days, and and oh, for the um, a lot of uh, indecision, a lot of uh, confusion about you know what was what. Absolutely. And uh, you know, of course, back then Quebec said, "Well, we didn't sign the charter, so we're not going by the, yeah, the charter." And yeah. So if you're doing prisoner escorts, and you know, there were complaints from. The prisoner that Quebec hadn't followed their charter rights, and now you brought them into Ontario jurisdiction. It, <laughs> right, it right. was really, it, it was interesting times. So a lot of case law coming out of those those years. You know, your your search and seizure powers and uh, Section Ten and yeah, as as a, I mean, maybe it's easier if you're if you're a new constable to learn the uh, quote unquote right way as opposed to being yeah. a guy or girl ten years on the job and now someone's saying, well, you need a charter caution for this, you need, you yeah. know. I kind of, I kind of use the the switch to the metric system when right. I was in school. Right. Uh, you know, I, I still, uh, to me, temperature is, is uh, Celsius, distance is still feet and yards, and, mm-hmm. and but I use kilometers, and so I'm one of, sort of one of those mixed people. But you're right, the the generations after me who were raised only in the metric system, that's all they know. Yeah. So it was a similar parallel in policing. Uh, London, Ontario, that's um, sort of halfway between Detroit and Toronto. Is that about right? Yeah, right in, right in the 401 corridor, the Highway 401. So it's, uh, yeah, it's about an hour and a half one way, an hour and a half the other way. And what city the- right now, 
I was going to tell you population. Yeah. Back then, it was about, uh, when I started, it was around 250. Now it's just a hair under 500,000. Mm-hmm. So the city's grown, and, and it's gone through a number of uh, annexations of surrounding areas. So geographically, it's a really large city. I, I can't remember offhand the uh, the total square kilometers, but it's it basically doubled in size. And so there's a huge increase in the population. And the police service really didn't keep keep pace with that. Uh, London, for the longest time, only used single officer patrol cars. And they would have paddy wagons out on patrol, as opposed to a lot of other cities that, that they were called in when they needed to transport prisoners. Right. London actually had patrol wagons in the downtown core area. And so most calls you went to by yourself. It was only in the later years where they started adding uh, two officer cars in certain areas. So, you know, you got a lot of these calls as a young kid, which I was, uh, by yourself. You learn really quickly how to talk to people. You know, it's if, if we're talking anecdotes, there was one I recall. I remember I went to a, it was a domestic, and back then domestics were not treated, uh, perhaps you know that they were taken seriously, but not like they are now. Mm-hmm. And it was an older fellow who worked at GM Diesel, which built all the locomotives and the military vehicles. And it was a case where he had come home, dinner wasn't ready, and he assaulted his wife. And of course, we show up, and she's saying, "No, no, no, I don't want anything done about it." So you know, we're trying to do what we can. And I recall saying to him about, you know, you should be more respectful of your wife and, you know, it's, it's a partnership and you shouldn't be assaulting. And he put up his hand. He said, kid, how old are you? I said, well, that's not really relevant to the situation here. Right. Yeah. He said, look, he said, I've been married for 30 years. What are you going to tell me about marriage? And I looked at him. I said, you're absolutely right. But I can certainly explain Section 495 of the criminal code, which means if I come back, you're coming with me to jail. And I went home, and the next day I started growing a mustache. I looked older on the street. <laughs> you do what you can. You might as well start yeah. dyeing your hair gray if you could. Yeah, I mean, I was only twenty at the time, so you know, I I, I look back on it now. I was probably too young to be on the street carrying yeah. a firearm. Yeah, but that was the realities back then. What were the issues in the in London in the eighties? What what what's the crime? What's the vice? Uh, a lot of it was, you know, uh, thefts, thefts from vehicles. Uh, there wasn't a lot of violence like there is now. Guns mm-hmm. were, I mean, when we would do our, our shift parades, yeah. you'd never hear about someone being armed with a gun. Right. Occasionally you hear about somebody carrying a knife. Uh, and, of course, through my career, that started to change. You started to hear more and more about people with guns. Uh, you know, the illegal firearms coming in started to increase the, the amount of violent crime, the robberies, the street rips, the carjackings that all started to increase but in the early days it was mostly you know bar fights people had too much to drink thefts from vehicles break and enters you know has always been a a major issue Uh, but you know you you saw the evolution of what i would call the violence right uh, right violent type offenses the benefit of reading you know some of your articles and i think very much informed by your own experience uh police hiring standards or or education and qualifications is certainly a big interest of yours. Um, yeah. So let me frame the question this way, and I, and I appreciate there's discrepancies in different provinces, but what's a generic um, educational qualification standard for a, a police officer in Canada at, at a high level? Well, when I started in 1982, it was high school, grade 12, right. education. Uh, I think it was 1977, it changed from grade 10 mm. to grade 12. To this day in Ontario, the education requirement is a high school education. That hasn't changed. It, 
hasn't changed since 1982. Now, there is a new uh, uh, Community Safety Act that's coming out and has in it requirements to be a police officer of a university degree, a college degree, or a college diploma. Quebec is the only province that officially within their Police Services Act requires a diploma from a CJEP, their, their version of community college. However, over the years, it's become apparent that police organizations are hiring people with college diplomas or university degrees. Right before I retired uh, in 2012, I was in uh, the HR office where we did the recruiting and we hired 22 officers. And of those 22, 20 of them had a university degree, two of them had a master's degree. One had a college diploma, but it was a military police officer for a number of years, which is its own irony in that to be a military police officer, you have to have a two-year college diploma. To be a municipal or a federal or provincial police officer, grade 12 education. Hmm. So there's a disconnect there. So the reality is, is that over the years, it's become a sort of an unwritten, what I call a latent barrier to people coming in that you have to have an education beyond high school, whether it's college or university, some form of post-secondary education is the de facto requirement now to be a police officer. It's never been formalized because police organizations resist having that flexibility and hiring that exceptional candidate that perhaps doesn't have it. My point is, why do you keep the bar artificially low for the rarity when you can raise the bar and increase your candidate pool. And some will say, well, it disadvantages certain groups that don't have access to that. My point is then we create programs, mentorship programs, education programs to help raise them up instead of artificially keeping them low. That's where I think the problem is. So I'm a big advocate that post-secondary education should be a requirement. And if you look at Stats Canada, uh, you know, 67 to 69% of the Canadian population has some form of post-secondary education, whether it's a trade certification or a, a doctorate. And if the police services are, are meant to be representative of the community they serve, why are we not expecting that of, our, of the officers out there serving them? Or, or even you know, that I, the officers are in the top 70% of the Canadian population. That's not an unreasonable standard. No. no. One of my research uh, papers, I, I, I created a matrix that showed the education levels required. And if we look at some of the closest comparator uh, occupations, nursing, teachers, military police officer, uh, military officer, or lawyers, a military police officer has to have a two-year college diploma to be a military police officer at the rank of a corporal. My son's a military officer. He had to have a university degree, a four-year degree. He went to Royal Military mm -hmm. College. To be a teacher, you have to have a degree. And then an additional one, or now in Ontario, two years to get your B.Ed. So six years of post-secondary education. To be a nurse, you now have to have a degree in the discipline, in nursing. Mm -hmm. To be a lawyer, you know, a degree, then law school. To be a police officer, grade 12. So what's, what's concerning about that is if you look at, you know, what the occupations do and their areas of responsibility, the person who can give my son or daughter a detention and keep them in school after hours has upwards of six years of post-secondary education. But the person that can arrest, detain, possibly use lethal force against my son or daughter has a high school education. I think there's a disconnect there. And I think it, it's it's only you know going to better the policing field if they raise the bar, bring it up to that level of professionalization that the other disciplines exhibit. 
it's astounding to think about how much um, the job of being a police officer has changed in the last 40 years, or certainly what society expects of police officers. And I think on balance for the better, you know, to have um, more of a sophisticated appreciation of um, different, you know, economic pockets in a, in a community or cultural issues or various um, charter protected issues about religious or racial issues or mental health issues. Um, not to mention, you know, pro- proliferation of, of hard drugs and, and a lot of the things that we expect a constable to be armed. I don't mean physically armed, but mentally or emotionally armed with those tools. Yep. And yet the, the, the baseline is, well, if you have a high school education, that's sufficient. And I appreciate what you're saying about to be competitive, you may need um, to have more education. But, yep. but yeah, but the standard is prescribed by, by policy or regulation is startlingly low. It is. And, you know, when I look back, when I started in 1982, uh, cell phones didn't exist. Yeah. Computers were a distant fantasy. The population in, in London was fairly homogenous. It wasn't as demographically diverse as it is now. Mm-hmm. And we didn't have the globalization of crime. We didn't have, you know, emails coming in from Nigerian princes scamming <laughs> yeah. elderly women yeah. out yeah, of their, yeah. their yeah. life savings. Sure, sure. That didn't exist. So over time, the the demands for, uh, you know, disclosure and yeah. investigations yeah. and the complexity of them, the increased globalization, the, the interoperability between different agencies across the country, uh, the expectations of the public, technology, all of this has completely changed the game. And it's not just a simple drive around and arrest the bad guys that it used to be. It's a very complex, uh, you know, discipline that you need to be trained for and have the education and the, the physical skills to do. Well, if I'm if I'm Crown Counsel, so so I'm a lawyer, so I have you know likely at least seven years of a formal education, and yep. you're a police officer, you've arrested someone, and you owe me a report to Crown Counsel, or you owe me a disclosure package, or we're going to meet before you give evidence or prepare an affidavit, and I don't mean for a second to suggest that well, if you have an undergraduate degree, you're necessarily smarter than the next guy or girl, but no. When we talk about, you know, the intense body of law about Section 8, you know, search and seizure law, or articulating yeah. grounds for arrest or detention um, for the purpose of getting, an, you know, uh, you know, defending an arrest or obtaining an ITO or something, um, sorry, uh, obtaining a search warrant, preparing uh, an affidavit in support of that, you have to read at a very high level. You need to be able to yeah. articulate your thoughts at a high level. You need to be able to yeah. correspond with with counsel, crown counsel, uh, in writing, yep. you know, at a very articulate level. And, you know, I, I would think you're sending a lot of police officers up for failure if they've been Absolutely. given a job and put in a position where their analytical and writing skills and reading comprehension skills are, are, are modest. Exactly. I, you know, I used to cringe uh, when I'd see officers on the stand being torn apart by defense lawyers because their, their reports, their notebooks, uh, were just so so vague or so you know lacking clarity and, and uh, spelling errors and reports and, and things like that. It, it, I mean, I've seen search warrant uh, applications get thrown out because the commas in the wrong place because it, you know the difference between a serial comma uh, changes what's going to be seized. Right, right. So it's it's very very complex. And you know, one thing I always tell my students is that in policing or in any public safety uh, discipline. There are very specific 
formats that you need to be able to write in. You yeah. need to write to the to the to the environment that you're in. And if you can write well in academia, which I would suggest is probably one of the toughest environments to write well in, you can write well anywhere. And in many organizations, a person's only known by their reports. Yeah. You know, what did you submit? Oh, look at oh, look at the spelling errors in this and the grammar. Oh, this this person's an idiot. It it creates an automatic perception, and it just uh, it. I think in many ways they're their own worst enemies, because if they simply wrote well, they would, you know, have a a higher perception among their coworkers. They'd have a higher perception, and I think support from the communities as well, because the community when when you're paying a, a you know frontline constable over a hundred thousand dollars there's a certain expectation of, of of ability and and competency there and when you see reports with spelling errors and you know officer spelling break on the break of a car is b-r-e-e-a-b-r-e-a-k you just shake your head and mm-hmm. if you can't spell that word right what else can't you do right so i, I think scott is there a, a, is there a that, cultural resistance within organizations to recruit or emphasize you know getting a four-year ba that that it's it's changing it's it's very much changing a lot of it you know it's one of the things i've often said about policing it's 150 years of tradition unimpeded by progress <laughs> there's sort of that you know the the old boys club mm. which we're, we're breaking down and I, I have to really give credit there's a lot of very progressive police leaders uh, police managers, police supervisors who understand this. And, you know, they recognize that there, there has to be a change. But changing culture happens in one of two ways. It either takes a, a cataclysmic event to change culture, or it takes generations to change. And so I think what you're seeing is the generational change in policing as new younger officers with higher levels of education are coming in. And it's it's slowly creating that that change in the culture as they move up through the rank structures. Do you think if a new police officer who spent four years reading Chaucer and, and Shakespeare, they're going to come to the job better than someone who, who doesn't have that sort of background? Does, does a four-year liberal arts degree translate to the job? Well, as you said, because you have a degree doesn't mean you're smarter. Sure. I know a lot of stupid PhDs, <laughs> and I know a lot of really intelligent high school dropouts. Yeah. So it's not an indication. It, 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 I, and I hate to make a generalization or a blanket statement, but what an education, a post-secondary education does is it demonstrates the ability to learn and the ability to critically think. And that's what's so crucial is the ability to critically think and to separate the you know the wheat from the chaff, as as a, we talked uh, previously, in policing there's nothing that's black and white. It's just varying shades of gray, and so it's the analysis, the critical thinking, that really becomes important to it. And I think that's what education brings to the table. It does not replace the fact that you need to know how to use a firearm. You need to know how to drive a, a police cruiser. You need to know how to affect an arrest. Those are the physical skills. But there's nothing saying that it's only you know, it, it, it's it's not a diametrically opposed situation here. It's a case of where there needs to be some sort of symbiotic relationship between the the academia and the training. On, uh, on I, that I, on that point, you've written sure. about the um, and I, I know we're talking about police organizations generally, and and I'm I'm the first to say I'm sure uh, Vancouver Police Department where where I am and London Police Service probably run their house very differently, or maybe they don't. I don't know. But but broad generalities here. Um, 
police organizations promote by rank or promote to rank rather than promoting by position. And I think I think that's interesting that you've that you've identified that um, that, that's very paramilitary, but it's unique to a lot of organizations or businesses where um, a a person has a has a skill set or an aptitude that they're identified for for that position, as opposed to just another bar or set of chevrons where maybe they're going to be plunked into a role that they're actually not very good at. They may be a good leader, yep. but that that position that, that accords with their rank is not something they're suited to do. Yeah, it's it, it's something I've looked at quite a bit. There are very few organizations that promote to position. The Ontario Provincial Police is one that does for some positions. And it, it comes back to the expectation that police officers are generalists first and then become specialists. So I've seen officers with, you know, former careers as accountants with a degree in accounting who want to go into the fraud squad or commercial crime. And they, they're not selected for those positions and they move someone that doesn't have the skill sets. Part of that is, again, timing and resource deployment, who's available when the position's open. But I think it's a case of where organizations need to really look step back and take a look at their their internal performance management systems, their career development systems, and their promotional systems to make sure that they're identifying candidates, that they're grooming them, developing them to move into certain positions. The problem is, is that because it follows that strict paramilitary structure, as you move up in rank, it becomes you know narrower and narrower where you'll have people that are responsible for a much broader uh, number of divisions, a different base. So they may not have the experience in it. So the logic is to allow these officers as part of their development to experience working in different areas. For example, you know, the, the homicide, you can go from homicide as a detective sergeant and you get promoted. Now you become the, the inspector of human resources. They're not necessarily transferable skill sets. You know, I, I talk about competencies and, and uh, you know, past performance being predictive of future performance. And, and I disagree with that. Past performance is only predictive of future performance if the competencies remain the same. And the example I often give is Wayne Gretzky, fantastic hockey player, one of the best in history, not a very good hockey coach because the competencies changed. So to say that someone has the skills, the abilities, the training, the education, the competency to be a homicide investigator does not mean they're going to be able to transfer over into HR where they're responsible for performance management, for hiring, for, for you know, um, contract negotiations. Mm-hmm. So are organizations developing their people to give them the competencies to move to the positions they're going to? That's what a career development program should be doing, and that's where some of these organizations are lacking. So that's an area that I think where there's there's movement, but we haven't yet reached that level where you know the best decisions are being made necessarily to move people into positions they're they're best suited to. However, the other side of that is that you you have to understand that organizations reserve the right to promote and to move people into positions based on organizational needs. We were talking earlier about um i think one of the, one of the most interesting things you write about and probably the most controversial is the distinction between a service and members who act professionally yes versus a professional service or a service staffed by professionals and this is an, a long awkward way of saying yeah um are police officers in canada professionals is that is that a profession 
I'm a heretic for saying it, but I don't believe they are. They are what I would call a quasi-profession. And there's a number of reasons for it. And I'm going to be real clear right up front. That does not mean in any way whatsoever that police officers, police organizations are not professional in how they deal with the community, with stakeholders. But it, when you look at what the, the, the strict definition of a profession is, there are certain requirements in order to be recognized as a profession. The two that police have not yet achieved is the requirement for post-secondary education or education beyond a high school level. And the second one is that professions have to be autonomous in governance. That's something I don't think you'll ever see in policing because of the civilian oversight, which I don't disagree with at all. There has to be some form of civilian oversight because of you know, the seriousness of the, the types of events they deal with. But that doesn't mean that police can't continue to strive to move towards the other criteria to be a profession. They are always professional. But I could have a plumber come to my house, offer me a very good price, do an excellent job, no leaks, clean up after themselves, very polite in dealing with them, very professional. That doesn't mean plumbing is a profession. And if you look at policing, policing is a highly, highly skilled trade. Mm-hmm. If you look at the, 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 the model for training young officers, they're hired, they go off to an, an education or a training institution for a period of time, then they come back and they're matched up with a field or coach officer. That's an apprenticeship model. That's how apprenticeships work. Yeah. And then once they've demonstrated they have the skill sets to be able to, to function on their own, they're allowed to go on their own with continued supervision. It's an apprenticeship model. Now, do you train officers to go on the street in a different manner? I would say that it's it's a, a process that works now, but that doesn't mean we can't continue to strive in other areas to increase certain criteria to move it towards professionalization. What would that look like? I mean, hearing you know speaking with you this morning, uh, the the pathways you've described feel more analogous to me, like being a plumber, electrician, in the mm-hmm. sense of um, it it being a trade. And you go to a a college or a, or a program that's relatively short in duration. Again, compared to more traditional professions, yeah. you are taught a lot of hands-on type skills, application of force, driving, shooting, fill out forms this way, march this way. Like a lot of people who work with their hands are taught how to, you know, fit a pipe this way or change a tire that way. And then at the end of the day, you're you're granted the ability to practice plumbing or electrician work or policing in this area that right. feels different than more traditional professions like law or medicine or being an architect where the schooling is much longer and how you apply those skills are quite are, are considerably broader i think although maybe that's where it gets yeah. um less clear it is it, it's it's what i call a, a quasi profession right right it has it has tenants from both. Sure, uh, it has the apprenticeship model, but it also has higher levels of, of expectations. There's a certain uh, there there is certain autonomy for officers on the road yes. to make decisions. Yes, uh, but there is civilian oversight, so it, it's it's a very gray area. What could change? How could we improve that? Well, first off, obviously, I'm a big advocate for education for policing. There's been a number of studies that have looked at uh, officers with post-secondary education. Uh, some are conflicting, but there's a general consensus that officers with that post-secondary education have a greater uh, appreciation and acceptance of diversity within their communities. They have a lower propensity to resort to excessive force 
an interesting one is they have lower sick time. I, I don't understand the correlation there. Uh, but they also have the ability to, to critically analyze, to uh, submit, uh, you know, comprehensive, clear, well-articulated documentation. So education is obviously, and, and the study I did uh, looked at competencies and how they related to, to hiring. And the, the results were quite clear that competencies can be developed through education and then refined through police training. So I was just out in Charlottetown uh, just prior to the uh, Hurricane Fiona hitting, yeah. uh, presenting at a conference talking about competencies. And one of the things that I, I mentioned there was that the Canadian public should have, and, and I believe does have, the expectation that a police officer in Charlottetown has the same competencies, the same level of skills, training, education as an officer in Vancouver in order to ensure there's a consistent approach to policing in Canada because we rely so heavily upon federal legislation. So how the federal law is applied in Vancouver should be the same as how it's applied in Charlottetown, as it is in London. Right now, there's there are inconsistencies. Each organization, uh, you know, falls to provincial uh, legislation, provincial guidelines, and, and this all goes back all the way to the Constitution Act, Section 91, Section 92, which talked about, you know, division of responsibilities. So what I think should happen is I would like to see the creation of a Canadian College of Policing, similar to the College of Nursing, similar to the, I'm not sure we have out in BC, but we have the, it was the Upper Canada Bar Society, it's now changed, uh, Upper Canada Law Society, but a, a, a College of Policing that would establish standards, practices, would be uh, you know, a, a clearinghouse for, you know, body uh, contributions, to the body of knowledge. So research studies, a lot of police organizations do some great research and, and you know, solve problems, but it's never shared hmm. nationally across the country. They may share it with a couple of local organizations, but there's a wealth of information and, and tactics and, and programs that are lost because they're not shared in any central repository. So the creation of a Canadian National College of Policing could be that forum. The, the gateway to entry to policing in Ontario, for example, is um, whether or not an applicant is hired by a municipal police force or, or the OPP, I suppose. Yes. And if if I if I'm a candidate and I'm accepted by London police, I'm yep. in the door. And, and these days, London is then going to offer me a job, and they're going to send me off to the police college or program, what have you. And yes, it's it's a post-hire program. Right. But it's a program only available to to persons offered a job by a police department. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. A, a civilian can't come in off the street and go to the Ontario Police College. Right. It's a post-hire educational institution. But the, the candidates who would show up to, to the class each fall or each semester, however, however they're run, the criteria for how they were selected varies by whether they're a candidate from from London or from Hamilton or from Toronto or from Thunder Bay. Is that right? There are some basic criteria, you know, grade 12 education, right. uh, driver's license, sure. first aid certification, they have to complete the... The, the baseline. Uh, the baseline. But then each organization has a certain degree of subjectivity in right. who they select right. and, and who they take. And some organizations, and it's, it's interesting when I look back over my career and I can see who was in charge of the hiring for my organization. And you can see uh, persons with high levels of education 
I can relate them back to who was in charge at the office at that time because they valued education. And then you can look at another group of people and they may have been, you know, uh, highly athletic and, you know, high level competitors in sports because when I look to who was in the office at that time, or you may get someone who, you know, favored people that were, you know, of a certain diverse uh, diversity group. And it's, it's reflective. So it, that shows that there's a certain degree of, of subjectivity in the process. It's not always completely objective. So how do you standardize that? Well, you know, I've always said promotional interviews are scored in pencil because that gives the selection boards the opportunity to move people into positions that best serve the needs of the organization. But I don't think that that means we have to artificially keep the level low. Mm. There should be consistent standards that you know, make it a level playing field for everyone coming in. Because, you know, if, if I have a, you know, a, a high school football player, high school captain, football player, wants to be a police officer, doesn't go to post-secondary education, but comes in and says, look, I have teamwork and, you know, I had high grades in high school and I'm, a, you know, I'm connected to the community and such. But if at the time, the expectation, that latent barrier that I talked about is we want people with post-secondary education and we're at targeting a, uh, you know, diversity then that person doesn't get the opportunity, but they're never told why. Mm. It's just not suitable. So that person walks away and wonders, okay, well, maybe I wasn't suitable for London. I'm going to go to Vancouver. And Vancouver has a different set of criteria. Right. Right. So, you know, they're never really aware of why. Instead, of an organization should simply say, this is the reality. This is where we're at in our hiring, and you don't meet the criteria because of these reasons. Otherwise, you're just selling people, you know, false hope, I think. Scott, I came across your name, gosh, a month or so ago. Uh, your Quarter National Post article about handgun control, I think. Yeah. Uh, when we started speaking earlier, you said, "Look, in you know in the '80s, coming up as a, as a as a young police officer in London, a lot of property crime, not a lot of violent crime. A couple knives." Right. Yeah. In your 30 years, did that did that change? I mean, you guys are pretty close to the to the United States oh, border. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, what can you tell me about handguns in London and, and where they were coming from? Well, it was right around 1990-91 where we had a new chief come in, came from Toronto Police, and uh, we, we had started to see an increase in, in the type of violent crime. Uh, back then, a lot of it was, you know, sawed-off long rifles, sawed-off shotguns, sawed-off twenty two rifles. There weren't a lot of handguns. But we saw that there was starting to be an increase in the type of violence that the officers were facing on the street. And that resulted in the, the formation of our emergency response unit. So I was originally on the committee that put the, the unit together. Uh, and then I was one of the original 11 members uh, for that team, served on it for six years. And that was created because of the dangers, the increased uh, violence, the increased use of firearms that officers were facing on the street. It just became, we needed to... I mean, the old saying, don't take a knife to a gunfight. Well, for a police officer who's being confronted, much like Mayor Thorpe or uh, you know, they're facing Monkey. long rifles, AR-15s. Yeah. And, you know, you have an officer in the street with a now a, a pistol, forty caliber. They're outgunned. And so it became evident that, you know, you know I, I always said that people have to understand that the police aren't paid to lose. Because if, if they lose, what does that mean? That means anarchy yeah. within the community. So, you know, the, the escalation of, of force within the community, the escalation of violence and, and proliferation of, of guns 
mandated, we had to respond to that in some manner. So that was the creation of, of the emergency response unit. And it changed a lot of the training. That's when we started to have mass shootings recurring. Now, they're you know an everyday event south of the border. Sure. But I'd like to think that Canada were, were a little more refined than that, a little more civilized. But they started to happen, and they needed to respond. So not just the creation of these special units, but also the training for officers. How do officers respond to these mass shooting incidents? It's you know, uh, it, it's part of what they would call ERD, emergency response mm-hmm. deployment. It, how do you, as two officers showing up on a scene at a high school where there's a shooting going on, active shooter? How do you deal with that? Well, that was something that we never had to consider in the 80s. Yeah. Now it's it's part of everyday training for police officers. So it's it's a case, in, and it's it's similar to the the use of force uh, continuum that we use. Yeah. Police don't initiate high levels of force. Police respond to the level of force they're faced with, and they will always respond usually at least one level higher. So the response overall is in response to what's happening in the community. And when you start to see the, the increase in the guns coming across the border, and, and they're not coming across in, in huge shipping containers. It's one or two here, one or two there, a couple smuggled in the back of a, uh, a trunk of a car, yeah. or as we had not too long ago, in, just outside of London, some were smuggled across the border, across the, the river with a drone. Oh yeah, it crashed. Yeah. So they were able to, to to seize them. So I mean, it's technology, innovation, uh, determination driven by the the dollar to bring these guns into Canada has really increased the number that are here, and it's prompted a response by the police. Do you have concerns um, about about the militarization of the police? It was a buzzword a couple of years ago. Yeah. Um, you know, hear, hearing you talk, the police aren't paid to lose. I get that. You need yep. to exceed the force you come across on the street again to ensure you get home safe does that does that lead canadian police forces to hard body armor to every call carbines in every corner is that a concern yeah it's you know it's it's a really fluid situation when i look at the militarization of police uh first off i've got some friends down in in the states who are chiefs of police and high-ranking officers and and they will right tell you that when they recruit they will look for former military. In fact, many police organizations will actually get a, you know, for lack of a better term, a signing bonus for bringing a veteran onto their police organization. With that comes a certain mindset. A military mindset is different than a policing mindset. So they have that mindset already built in. And then what happened uh, shortly after the Gulf War ended was the U.S. had all this surplus military equipment. So they sold it to police organizations. So that when you, that's when you start to see the shift in the states mm. towards the, the higher levels of militarization. As a result, Canada looked south of the border and said, well, we have some of those problems, so maybe we should look to external vest carriers. Maybe we should you know, move from the, the, the light baby blue police shirts to the dark shirts. Yeah. Ties went by the wayside. Yeah. Hats yeah. suddenly disappeared. Uh, and it became, you know, a slow process towards that same form of militarization. The problem I see with that is that just creates a, a larger separation between the officers in the community. It now becomes an occupying force as opposed to, you know, our community servants. And at the end of the day, that's what they are. They're community servants. They're doing a job. But if you look back to the original foundations of policing from Robert Peel, you know, the, the police are the public and the public are the police. So interesting you say that, Scott, because you know it, it's funny those those little things. You know, a, a light blue shirt to dark, lose the tie, 
lose the hat, little trappings. I guess some of that is probably just style. You know, everything changes. But start adding them up, and you're right. Yeah. Uh, the the picture of a of of a constable forty years ago is a gentler looking yeah. person than someone today who looks much more closer to a, a soldier um, than you know a conventional civil servant. Yeah, some of those changes have come about because of occupational health and safety. Of we'll take that away. Yeah, from it. sure. But when you know, and it's 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 ironic that uh, a lot of police officers have that Norman Rockwell picture of the officer sitting in the cafe looking yeah. down at the little child, yeah, sure. and they have the hat on, yeah. you know, the, the Barney Fife look with the cross strap, Sam Brown. Yeah, and, yeah. And, you know, when you look to that, and then you look today at police officers, it's just light years in difference. And has that hardened? the public's perception of police. Well, that'd be an interesting study to do. Uh, but I, I, anecdotally, I would say it has. It, it's changed the perception of the police, particularly when you're dealing with the greater diversity that we have now, with people coming from countries where they have come from, you know, occupying military or police services. And they come here and they see something similar. Mm-hmm. Well, it's the old saying, my perception is my reality. Yeah. So they see that and automatically it creates a perception of an us against them. And I think that damages that 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 community uh, relationship. It's you know, the, the police depend upon the community. If, if you look to and it's probably somewhere in Vancouver, if you look to Toronto and they have a shooting, and the police go and canvas the neighborhood, nobody saw anything. Yeah, nobody heard anything. I mean, you know, they did, but they don't want to say because there's that 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 separation there. And I think police need to work to to break down that barrier. But I think the community needs to have a better understanding of what the police are there to do and uh, you know what's required to do the job so it's it, it there's no one solution to it it's it's a, it's going to have to be everybody contributing to it Scott, let me change. let me get your thoughts um on on less lethal alternatives i i know in your career you did some use of force instruction and, and whether you can speak from experience or or again the literature uh certainly there's an expectation by the public, you know, as, as amplified by journalists, that police responding to a call will always have a less lethal or maybe several less, less than lethal alternatives, whether that's OC spray or, or, or tasers or, or bean bags. And unfortunately, as we know from some high-profile incidents, they're called less lethal for a reason because, you know, they, they can still be lethal. Um, they can be lethal and they're not always available. They're not always there. Uh you know, I, I, and I speak from a person who's been in two shootings. I can tell you that those types of situations happen fast. Yeah. And there's not a lot of time to dissect it. There's no pause button and there's no reset button on these types of situations. Yeah. You will revert back to your training. And in those types of situations, you you have to look at the, the, the environmental factors that come into play, not just what the suspect has as far as skill, size. I mean, I've seen situations with six foot two bodybuilders. Uh, confronting a five foot two female officer. That's not to say the female officer is not capable in any way, but it, there's certain dynamics there that are beyond their control. Sure. And so that officer would have to resort to a higher level of force. So it's all very fluid, very dynamic, and it really happens fast. Alternate uses of force are not always available. I mean, there's OC spray every officer pretty much carries. There's a baton. But I think a lot of Perception by the public is driven by media and TV. You know, shoot the gun out of the person's hand, or why couldn't you just wound him? Right. You know, right. People have to understand the reason police officers use lethal force 
is because they're attempting to stop the threat. They're not attempting to kill the person. They're attempting to stop the threat. If they die afterwards, that's a medical problem. That's not a police problem. But we have to continue to shoot or to use whatever level of force is necessary to gain control of the situation and to stop the threat to the public. I've never met a police officer in my 40 plus years now of being involved directly in policing or indirectly that wants to go out and use lethal force against a person. I've never seen it. Never heard anyone even whisper the thought. In fact, most officers dread being involved in that situation. You just have to look at the recent incidents of what happens to the officers after those. Nobody wants to do that, but it's a reality of the job. So part of it is driven by, I think, you know, these uh, unrealistic expectations that, that media has, and, and not just print media. I'm talking films and sure. uh, TV shows and such. You know, the fact they never have to reload their weapon or they never have to do paperwork after the, the arrest. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. it just, people have this false perception. And so when an officer is involved in a situation, they automatically revert to, well, I saw on TV they did this. Why didn't you do that? Well, that's not how it happens. You know, the vast majority of, of the Canadian population has never been in a lethal use of force situation. They, they've never been confronted by somebody who wants to seriously harm you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, officers face that, I'm not going to say on a daily basis, but they face it often enough that, you know, I, I have to give due respect, to, you know, to a lawyer. There's certain things that I would never say I'm qualified to, to make a, a you know, comment on. Mm-hmm. That's a lawyer's position. Same as I would never tell my doctor, hey, doc, I'm a doctor too, so I'm going to tell you how my sure. my health test should go. No, like I've always said, I'm a doctor for, for dumb people, not for, for sick people. <laughs> so you have to realize that there's a certain level of, of, of competence that you have to expect and, and you have to be willing to, to take at face value. Scott, um, given everything um, you've said just now about threats on the street and, and the challenges of being a police officer, if you're a young person today, um, in light of the policing climate in Canada, and I mean everything from from defund the police to cell phone cameras Odin in your face on every call to you better know how to use an Narcan kit. I mean, there is a lot of issues and and emerging, you know, administrative challenges to police officers. Um, yep. Now let me rephrase that: if you could do it all over again, uh, and you're a young man today in 2022 you're still going to be a police officer or are you, or are you, you know, going, or are you going I, to law school I, i've thought about that and yeah. actually my son uh who i said is in the military has has thought about maybe leaving and going into police i think it's a case of where if you're going to make that decision to go into policing you need to go in wide eyes wide open yeah. you need to know what it's like you need to understand the environment you need to understand the expectations and you need to have the right mindset it's not going in and, and, you know, cops and robbers like it used to be. You have to go in with the understanding you are going in as a community servant. You are there to contribute and not separate yourself from the community. I've seen far too many officers over the course of their career isolate themselves only with fellow police officers for friends. Their wives get together and their, their children have play dates together. I always had outside interests, so that always allowed me to keep, you know, a, a healthy perspective on what we did and when i left policing i was quite content to move on to something else but for some people it becomes their entire identity for me it was something that i did yeah and it's a fantastic career it's it's a secure job the pay's good the benefits are fine the pension's great and you have the ability within that career to do a number of different things i worked detective office i worked the street i worked in, in research and planning 
prior to just finishing my career, I was a project manager for a construction project of a new police station. My uniform was a hard hat and steel toe work boots. So I got a chance to experience a number of different careers within one career and not have to change employers. So there's a lot of opportunity. If you move to a provincial or national police service, there's opportunities to move around the country and see what's out there. So is it a good career? Yes, it is. I think it's just a case of where you need to have your eyes wide open going into it and understanding what you're getting into. Yeah. And I think when I was 18, I was a little naive as to what I was getting into. Uh, Scott, let's leave it there. Uh, thank you for your sure. time this morning. Uh, thank you for your service. And um, thank you. look forward to connecting with you again in the future. Scott Blanford is a super interesting guy. And if you are listening and work in law enforcement, I would strongly recommend tracking down one of Scott's courses at Wilfrid Laurier. I know they're all online and he very much enjoys working and teaching police officers. Uh, Up next on the show is former correctional officer John Williams. Uh, John wrote a book in 2020 called Life on the Inside where he details his time working in maximum security federal penitentiaries, uh, including the Kent Institute in Agassiz. He talks about slashings, hangings, riots, hostage takings, and even coming across uh, notorious serial killer Clifford Olson. But that's all next time. Until then, I'm Dan Coles, and we are under reserve.